You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the evening of June 18, 1954, Albert Love Patterson walked out of his law office in Phoenix City, Alabama. Former state senator, soldier in France in World War I, was aware of how bad the situation the town he lived in was. He was a member of the Phoenix City Betterment Association, which in most towns probably wouldn't be a big deal. But in a town like Phoenix City, spelled P-H-E-N-I-X, no one knows quite why, various stories on that, on the border between Alabama and Georgia, near the Chattahoochee River, near Fort Benning, which earned its place from offering illegal Casino gambling, being part of a betterment or civic association, wasn't the same as it might be in some other town. In the 30s, the town was broke and decided illegally to offer gambling service in city limits and not enforce. Sheriff deputies and judges hung with gamblers and gangsters. Soldiers from nearby Fort Benning would arrive on their paydays, drinking, carousing, prostitution, gambling would take place, fights, disputes were common. Those foolish enough to complain about all the illegal activity in Phoenix would find themselves arrested, beat up, or thrown in the Chattahoochee River, live or dead. Those arrested would find themselves released with their pockets a little lighter. The gangsterism in the town was so bad that General Patton, who used Fort Benning, said he wanted to take two divisions across the river and take the town out. Now, it looks like a great town today. There's a big amphitheater by the side of the river. It's a family town, good community. And part of the reason for that is that people like Patterson got involved back then and took a stand against corruption. The Phoenix City Betterment Association tried to elect people to local government to get a better mayor. They couldn't get anyone elected. Nor could they get anybody in the larger county, Russell County, because the crime syndicate that controlled everything had so much money that it controlled the politics in both places. So the solution for the Phoenix Betterment Association was to go ahead and run for state office, which Albert Love Patterson did, became a state senator. Then he decides he'll run for state attorney general, try to crack down on the crime in Phoenix City, which had become something with a statewide reputation. The crime syndicate backs his opponent, Red Porter. But Patterson's able to win out in a very close election, June 1954. Now, that was a Democratic primary. 
General elections in Alabama were a formality in then. He was pretty much going to be Attorney General. Eight days after it was determined he was the winner, Patterson walks to his car, an alleyway, on Fifth Avenue, near the Elite Cafe. An assassin fires one shot, and the Attorney General-elect drops to the ground. blue marker marks the historical spot today. And some who visit Phoenix City say that they still see his ghost, the ghost of Albert Love Patterson. Either in the form of a man lying in the alleyway or a well-dressed man walking around. But it didn't take a ghost to change things in Phoenix City after this event and after Patterson's sacrifice. The assassination of the highest law enforcement official in the state soon to be summoned the state's attention. And the governor came down hard. The National Guard was called in. 734 indictments were brought forth. And the leaders of the crime syndicate arrested, including corrupt local officials, the sheriff, the prosecutor, all arrested. Many of the county officials arrested. Case had statewide publicity. And the Democratic Party, now lacking a candidate for that general election, saw their opportunity. They could no longer run Albert Love Patterson, but they could run his son, James Malcolm Patterson, on the ticket. He wins, overwhelmingly, and becomes a little bit of a star in the state, with lots of goodwill. Four years later, he runs for governor. And he's up against... An up-and-comer in Alabama politics, George Wallace. And as his daughter Peggy said, Wallace complained about Patterson. All he has to run on is his daddy. And to some extent, that's true. But Wallace found out that while Patterson's main issue was fighting crime, there was something deeper. And uh, we feel like that the uh, federal marshals coming into this state uh, against our will amounts to a, an unconstitutional encroachment on the rights of this state and its people. And we, uh, we resent... Such- Something happens in 1954, and that's the Brown v. Board of Ed decision, which requires the integration of schools nationally. There are resistance movements in every one of the southern states. Patterson, this up-and-coming gubernatorial candidate wanting to run on a crime issue, says every time he'd bring up issues like that, that wasn't what voters would want to hear. All people wanted to hear about were what you were going to do about segregating schools. Well, that's because the voters, in quotes, in Alabama at that time would be a smaller group than we might imagine today. Black voters were completely disenfranchised. These elections were entirely an election of white men. Most black citizens of Alabama could not vote. There was a poll tax that was $2, which is not a lot. So everyone had to pay that. It's not a lot Um, I mean, it's more money than it is today, but not a huge amount. But if you had never voted before, if you were registering for the first time, you had to pay the entire back tax all of those years. Plus, you have to be interviewed, and then the clerk might just throw your application away. So Alabama elections in the 1950s now become 
racist versus racist, who can be more racist. And in this election, 1958, to hear George Wallace's daughter tell the story from some historical accounts, Wallace was more of a moderate on race, somebody who wasn't bringing the issue up a lot, although he might have very well had the same positions. And Patterson, as the attorney general of the state, is able to do something about it, show voters that he was with them. For instance, he sues the NAACP and doesn't allow them in the state of Alabama because they are not an allowed registered corporation. He sues the Tuskegee boycotts, who are boycotting businesses, and claims the Tuskegee Boycott Association is an illegal group and is liable for damages to businesses they had caused with their boycott. They were boycotting because in the town of Tuskegee, black voters were gerrymandered out. Patterson beats him in the 1958 election and becomes one of the youngest governors in the nation, winning the election in his 30s. As I record this, as I record this, John Malcolm Patterson is still alive. He is the oldest living, let's say, he is the longest um, living uh, ex-governor from the time that he had served in office. Now, it's a lesson that Wallace is not going to forget, and that's part of the George Wallace story that uh, he will make sure to be not just racist, but over-the-top racist, to be the guy that's in the school blocking the schoolhouse door. But for now, Patterson is governor, and his story is not as well known. But he intersects with another young politician, and that young politician, of course, is John F. Kennedy. Now, you might think Kennedy, Massachusetts liberal, what has he got to do with an Alabama segregationist? Well, it's interesting because in the 1956 convention, Kennedy runs for vice president. He does not win. Um, he loses to Estes Kefauver. But what support that Kennedy gets is from those who don't like Kefauver and other Southerners don't like him. They don't um, like his support for some civil rights issues. Kennedy's not exactly like, you know, supporting Southern positions on civil rights. In fact, he's quoted as saying that the country uh, needs to equalize the the schools, the jobs, the the lunch counters, and things like that. Uh, but between the two, most of the Southerners favored Kennedy. That enabled him to build relationships. He also um, does one thing after the loss in 1956. In, in the 1957 Civil Rights Bill, Kennedy offers an amendment which prevents those who are accused of civil rights violations from getting a judge trial. It guarantees them the right to a jury trial. Now, Kennedy can play a game with this. He can say that, look, he's looking out for the rights of defendants. But really, this is something that segregationists want so that they can commit their crimes and only be subject um, if they violate someone's civil rights to a jury which is going to be of their peers and probably not going to convict them. So Kennedy, you know, had become the not key offer candidate for some and develops this relationship with Patterson. Patterson also sees him as another young politician, another up-and-comer. He supports him in the 1960 convention. Kennedy gets the Alabama delegation, one of his strongest southern states. So Kennedy has this little dance that he has to play, and all politicians from the North had to play, that there's this bank of votes sitting there, from the South, both the votes of people and the votes of delegates and the support of governors and things like that, that you want as a potential candidate for the presidency, but what comes with it is support of certain positions. 
And in any case, even if you are successful with getting some Southern support as a Massachusetts liberal, it's not going to be complete. So in both Mississippi and Alabama, there are um, uncommitted electors who run in these elections. And so while John Patterson sets up a pro-Kennedy slate of electors in Alabama for the 1960 election, there's also an uncommitted set of electors. Kennedy's going to get five electoral votes out of Alabama. The uncommitted slate will get six. Very unimportant for his election because he's going to clobber Nixon in the Electoral College. It is important for a question about Kennedy's popular vote total, which is going to come up later. Patterson gets along well with Kennedy. It's Wednesday, October 26, 1960, and it's not a good day for Martin Luther King Jr. He's in a prison cell in DeKalb County, Georgia, having been arrested during one of his civil disobedience protests. Now, that's in the Atlanta metro area. But at night at 4 a.m., sheriff deputies aim their flashlights into his face and yell at him to get up. They handcuff him, shackle his legs, grab him, get him out of the cell. And he keeps asking for an explanation. What's going on? They say nothing. He's in the back seat of a police car, rolling into the night, going out into the middle of the country where there's nothing, just the headlights of the car. He's fearful. So is his wife at home, Coretta King. She's six months pregnant with the couple's third child. It's already been a week for this King participating and being arrested in a student-led sit-in. He didn't want to disappoint the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and he wanted to help them, trying to desegregate Rich's Department Store, one of Atlanta's institutions, a sit-in in their snack bars and restaurants. King had advised them maybe hold off until the presidential election's over. The students wanted, insisted, they wanted him there. If the two candidates saw him, it would force the issue of segregation. He was arrested, and now he had no idea where he's being taken. Fortunately enough, he discovered that the squad car was at least taking him to a maximum security state prison in Reedsville. Here's the problem, though, as he saw it. He could still be put under hard labor. And if he's out there in chain gang with these other murderers and people, he's not a popular guy among white men. Both candidates become aware of this situation that's breaking in the, in the last month of a very tight presidential campaign, John Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And initially, it should be said, both men do very little. Nixon says he doesn't want to touch the issue. It's a hot potato. They're contesting several southern states. So is Kennedy. It's a hot potato. Uh, Jackie Robinson, who is a Nixon supporter at this time. Nixon's going to get a a good percent of the black vote as as Republicans could expect in those days. Comes to him, pleads with them, and is so angry when he has to leave the meeting with Nixon that Nixon's not going to do anything. The truth is... John Kennedy doesn't really want to do much either. Neither does his brother Bobby. Again, they they also believe this is kind of a hot potato issue. And Kennedy is really courting in 1960 Southern white support, Southern governors. He gets a um, backing from the Georgia governor, Van Dever. It's that, it look, 
if you're not going to force me to desegregate my schools when you become president, I'll support you for president. It's not new. A lot of Southerners supported Kennedy's run for vice president in 1956 over Kefauver because of Kefauver's position on civil rights and Kennedy's ability, although he was a senator from Massachusetts, to kind of straddle on that issue. So he does call the governor of Georgia. Is there any way you could get Martin Luther King out? Be a tremendous benefit. Governor doesn't really commit to much, but says, uh, I'll see what I can do and call you back. This is when an aide, Harris Wofford, who's going to become much later, much later in the 90s, is going to become a senator from Pennsylvania, who's friendly with King, uh, and Sergeant Shriver, who's going to be a vice presidential candidate later, 1972. He's the senator's brother-in-law right now. Um, they're kind of heading up the civil rights section of the Kennedy campaign, and they're on the fringes of the campaign. They see an opportunity here. They also talk to Lewis Martin, who is a black businessman, a newspaper publisher, who was helping out JFK to reach out to the black community, kind of their, the Kennedy campaign's liaison. Martin's really concerned about King. He knows that most African Americans are concerned about Martin Luther King right now. He should do something direct. Pick up the telephone. It would be enough, Harris Wofford and Martin thought, if he just did that. They want more support within the campaign because they know that there's opposition. That's going to come from Bobby Kennedy and Ken O'Donnell, who is uh, – he he's a key um, kind of a South Boston Irish guy who's their advisor. He doesn't want them to touch this issue either. So they kind of work around them. And Shriver is on the plane with Jack. and. Uh, and Kennedy's surrounded by O'Donnell and three other aides, and they're all against this idea. It'll be seen as a gimmick. No political upside to this. Kennedy asks O'Donnell privately, what do you think? And Ken says, I'm sympathetic to Mrs. King and her family. There's a million ways politically this could be a mess. But then Sergeant Shriver catches Jack alone. So um, my dad knew uh, Martin Luther King. They had worked together in Chicago in the 50s. Um, so he, a couple of guys came up with the idea. Dad was running the civil rights division of the Kennedy campaign for president in 1960. And they were told that if Kennedy ever said anything nice about Khrushchev, Castro, or King, they were going to throw their support for Nixon. And at that point, a lot of African-Americans were voting Republican, uh, and many of them were Protestant. So they were wary of the Catholics and the Democratic Party. But dad uh, convinced Uncle Jack in a hotel room in Chicago. He waited till everybody left the room. Then he said to Jack, would you mind calling Coretta Scott King? You know, Martin Luther King had been arrested a couple of days earlier in Georgia and people feared for his safety. And he waited till everybody had left because he was nervous that somebody would say no. Blacks don't think much is going to happen, whether it's you or Nixon. But they do want to know whether you care. If you telephone Coretta Scott King right now, they will know you understand and help. You will reach their hearts and give support to a pregnant woman who is afraid her husband will be killed. And uh, Kenny O'Donnell, Jack's closest aide, went to the bathroom. Dad popped a question. Jack made the phone call. It was over in a minute. But it's the candidate's decision. He doesn't confer with anybody else. That's a pretty good idea. How do I get to her? Shriver hands over Coretta's telephone number. Kennedy says, dial it for me, will you? Good morning, Mrs. King. This is Senator Kennedy. After a brief exchange, he offers his sympathy. I want to express to you my concern about your husband. He mentions that he was aware she was expecting a baby and just wanted to know I was thinking about you. If there's anything I could do to help, please, please feel free to call on me. doesn't promise anything. doesn't ask for anything. Just, just that. 
Um, Coretta does say, I would appreciate anything you do to help. It lasts no more than 90 seconds. The whole thing from Shriver telling him this to like, is like a 20 minute episode to him getting on the phone. Um, Kenny O'Donnell's like, you just lost us the election, Shriver. Bobby was apoplectic. Bobby landed on me like a ton of bricks. He scorched my ass, Shriver recalled. So, but it really didn't cost him the campaign. In fact, it might have earned him the election because uh, Kennedy got a good percentage, the African-American vote in that election, which was not available to other Democrats. Here's what Time Magazine says. In his book, The Making of the President 1960, campaign historian Theodore Wythe assessed the impact of the call to Coretta. One cannot identify in the narrowness of American voting of 1960 any one particular episode or decision as being more important than any other in the final tallies. But the instinctive decision must be ranked among the most crucial of the last few weeks. Theodore White observed that blacks were convinced that they had anointed Kennedy. Some political leaders claim in the black community, White wrote, that in no less than 11 states, Illinois, New Jersey, Michigan, South Carolina, Texas, Delaware, Maryland, Missouri, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Nevada, with 169 electoral votes. It was their community that provided the Kennedy margin of victory. The election as it stands now, really over. The only thing we're waiting for is Senator Kennedy. Now, this morning at about 11.05 a.m. Eastern Time, the president-elect, this is a pool story we have from Hyannis, and pool reporters always write everything down in fear that their colleagues will trip them up, wearing a gray suit and a red tie, called on his father, Joseph, in his father's house at Hyannisport, Joseph Kennedy. Had a photographer, as he walked across the line, took Kennedy's picture. Kennedy advised him to, to wait, said, you'll get all the pictures you want later. Nixon was embittered by his narrow loss and the surprising black turnout for Kennedy. Time Magazine writes, later explaining his no comment at the height of the King uproar, he admitted it was a fatal communication gap. I had meant Herb, his press secretary, to say that I had no comment at this time. Instead, he said he had no comment. But Time Magazine asks, does this explanation conform to reality? Nixon had heard a drumbeat of voices within his campaign begging him to speak out immediately but he remained silent. We've made that position clear to the federal government. Uh, we have always enforced the law of this state. We will continue to do so. Uh, we have the uh, manpower to do it. When there's a Supreme Court decision during the Kennedy presidency in 1950-61, which says that bus transportation has to be desegregated, Patterson and Kennedy talk and agree that Patterson will have state troopers protect the bus that a group of freedom riders are riding. And these freedom riders are going to ride from Virginia to New Orleans through the southern states and test whether the court and whether the Kennedy administration is going to enforce the court's ruling. It's no good to have all these court cases, black activists start thinking, if we're not going to have any support from the administration enforcing them. So Patterson agrees, on the highways, he'll protect the bus. Well, the problem occurs when the bus stops. The bus is warned, but still goes to a bus depot in Anniston, Alabama. The bus depot is closed. It's been closed because there is a mob there that has shut it down. 
and they have the cooperation of the police, local authorities, who are also Klansmen. They stop the bus, they bang on the bus, they bust up windows, they throw rocks, they're yelling, they're shouting. It's a huge mob. One um, Klansman lays in front of the bus, so it's like the driver either has to run him over, which you can be sure would cause a lot of trouble, stop the bus. They tell the Freedom Riders to get off the bus. They will not. They eventually firebomb the bus. It's a horrible mess. When the Riders arrived in Anniston, they were met by a brutal mob which shattered windows, punctured the tires of the bus, and set it on fire. They held the door. And I remember them saying, let's burn them, let's burn them alive. Now, Kennedy tries to call his buddy Patterson to try to get resolution to these issues. Well, as Richard Reeves in his book, President Kennedy describes, Patterson now sees the politics going in a different direction. The president wanted to talk with Governor Patterson, the single Southerner, who had supported his national political aspirations. Kennedy picked up the telephone May 18th, four days after the Aniston attack on the Freedom Riders, and asked the White House operator to get Governor Patterson. Moments later, the operator called back to say Patterson's office and the governor were unavailable. He had gone fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. The president called the next day. This time, there was no fish story. Patterson simply refused to take the call. Finally, during a phone conversation with Robert Kennedy later the same day, Patterson agreed to meet face-to-face with a personal representative of the President of the United States. So, one of the few Southerners in Robert Kennedy's Justice Department, Siegenthaler, uh, rented a car. He was in Birmingham and headed for Montgomery. Patterson is not receptive anymore to these messages. He says he's got the spine to stand up to these agitators, and he uses some choice words I won't repeat. I believe I'm more popular in the country today than John Kennedy for the stand I've taken. But Siegenthaler and Patterson work out a statement declaring that the governor, not the president, was responsible for maintaining order. Siegenthal telephoned the text to the White House. The state of Alabama has the will, the force, and the men and the equipment to give protection to everyone in Alabama on the highways and elsewhere. Within hours, the president's personal representative was beaten and bloody, his unconscious body halfway under his rented car down the hall from the Alabama Capitol. The new Freedom Riders, organized in Nashville, had left Birmingham at 8.30 Saturday morning, escorted by highway patrol cars. There were men hiding everywhere, and within a couple of minutes they appeared, surrounding the riders, beating them with baseball bats and lead pipes, smashing the equipment of newspaper photographers and television cameramen. Siegenthal happened to be driving by. He tried to rescue two freedom riders, young white women being chased by white men swinging bats and clubs. He had stopped and tried to get them into his car, but he was the one who got clubbed to the ground. The representative of the President of the United States, and all that the federal government could do, there's a federal building right across from the bus station, and all they can do is watch. What more can we say? Um, What we can say about the story of James Patterson is he didn't last in office for all of his courting popularity with segregationists. He was term limited, and George Wallace would win that next election, and Patterson, despite trying, would not win another one. It is much later much later, that Patterson recants his activities, um, endorses Barack Obama in the 2008 election, meets with some of those freedom riders and with black activists, including John Lewis, 
in a meeting in 2011 where he offers an apology for what actions he's done. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Uh, some of the activists won't meet with him. They'll, they, they don't want to be photographed with him still. Kwame Lilland, who says, I don't want to go. I didn't want to go to the meeting. You know, referring to John Lewis, he said, John's more of a Christian than I am. I can't forgive. Huh? And I would like to see him do something, you know, start a scholarship or something, you know, rather than just saying he's sorry, you know, to which an older Patterson replied that he didn't have the kind of connections that he used to have. Patterson starts as a very sympathetic figure, but throughout history becomes less so. And this whole story of Patterson becomes somewhat relevant because we're we're going to answer a question um, about the popular vote in the 1960 election that a uh, listener asked. So this is another uh, listener questions episode. I, you know, thank you for listening, supporting the podcast. Want to make a quick mention about the Patreon site, Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/mhcbuip. That's the letters of my history can beat up your politics. So go to patreon.com slash mhcbuip, and uh, you can help support the program and, you know, get some extra episodes. So I like this question from Tom Morris. Okay, so who are the gumps of history? And by, you know, Roger Sherman signed all the constitutional documents. Robert Lincoln was near all of the presidential assassinations. What are the examples of people who were near the historical events, but not directly involved? Hence, he calls them, you know, like your Forrest Gumps of history. Well, I, I, it's interesting, you know. <laughs> um, let me drill down a bit. Uh, so what he's talking about, Robert Lincoln, yeah, I mean, I don't know. If you don't know the story, uh, I've talked about it here. It's kind of all over the place, really, uh, because he's the son of the president. He also does become Secretary of War. And in that capacity, he gets to witness the assassination of James Garfield. He's in the train station when this happens. Um, he is near his father when the assassination happens. He does, he's not right there in Ford's theater. He goes to the bedside. We'll talk about that in a bit. He happens to be in Buffalo at the Pan American exhibition when William McKinley gets shot. And not only that, in 1910, Robert Lincoln will end up being on a boat when the mayor of New York, William Gaynor, is shot by a disgruntled former employee. He's not killed Gaynor that time. So, yeah, I mean, there's many jokes about, well, you don't want Robert Lincoln near your presidential event. Uh, some of it's just because he was a popular figure to be, you know, a lot of people wanted him in administrations. Lincoln, Robert Lincoln, that is, does tire of just being kind of the president's son. and definitely tires of being in politics. That uh, secretary of war position is, is all that he'll serve. He became a railroad executive. He also became a lecturer and... um did start giving lectures about his father and lives all the way up into the 1920s and is there to see the Lincoln Memorial built. 
So yeah, that's an interesting one, though. Um, just you have these people that are kind of like on the fringes. So I get the question. And I guess like trying to observe those rules, there's many. One comes to mind is Nathan Dane. He's a continental congressman for Massachusetts, and he's a lawyer. Uh, he is the one who moves that the really the con- the continental or confederation at this point, Congress, amends that conf- articles of confederation, which in which will become the Constitution. But he doesn't like he doesn't go to that constitutional convention. He just makes the motion, which gets approved, to send a group to Philadelphia to edit the Articles of Confederation. Well, it turns into a constitution that's more than he wanted. He doesn't like many of the provisions. Um, When the document comes back, he's one of the members who were there when the Confederation accepts the planned constitution and sends it out to the 13 states. Uh, He still has objections. Not a fan of, um, the, you know, enlarging the government like that. At the end, though, he also has a role in discussing with, uh, with, with on the fence New Yorkers about approving. And it says, well, there's a lot of disagreement over the Constitution, but we're going to have anarchy if we don't approve it. So he's also instrumental in eventually convincing the New York Convention to ratify it with a couple of key letters. And uh, he's there when the Confederation Congress accepts the completed Constitution. Uh, he's not at the last meeting. That falls to another kind of gump of history, although he's just a gump for one appearance. A man named Philip Pell, who is the last member of the Continental Congress. You know, if you draw a direct line to the Confederation Congress after the Revolutionary War, that started in 1774. Philip Pell in 1787 is the final member. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that last meeting happens at Franz's Tavern in New York. It's not even... Uh, <laughs> it's not even in a, uh, or the city tavern of Philadelphia, you have to look that up. It's not even in the, any kind of hall. Okay. But there's more to Nathan Dean though. He, during his time in continental Congress, he is also, um, makes the motion to approve the Northwest territories as a place where slavery is not allowed. Uh, he's surprised with what little opposition that it gets. So he's not like a great fighter in the cause for slavery, but he's the one that makes that motion. He goes to Massachusetts. He does not serve in the federal government after the Constitution. He becomes more involved in his state. He becomes involved in the American Prohibition Movement. He is a delegate to the infamous Hartford Convention in 1814 that opposes the War of 1812 and is seen by many as being treasonous. But he actually goes to this convention to sort of help to prevent mischief. He becomes part of the American Antiquities Society that is formed to begin a collection of historical documents for the new American country. And he writes the General Abridgment and Digest of U.S. Law, which is used by lawyers for a lot um, as, a, as a core American legal document for a lot of the early part of the 19th century. Nathan Day. Um, what's more, um, you know, so... He's a guy who kind of like sees the creation of certain states with that Northwest Ordinance, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, without actually voting those states in specifically because at the time he's doing it, they're territories, um, or without knowing that that's what's going to happen, you know. In fact, not so long ago, he was awarded posthumously 
there was a Nathan Dane Day in Massachusetts. And in Indiana, uh, be giving his role in creating the, the territory that created the state, he is given a posthumous award as an honorary Hoosier by the governor at that time, Mike Pence. So, I don't know, I put Nathan Dane, Nathan Dane is one of your gumps. I mean, it's going to be hard to fit exactly in all these boxes, like some of the people had a little involvement in history. But here's one. If you're going to say Robert Lincoln, how about the man that was with Robert Lincoln that night drinking whiskey while his father was in Ford's Theater? And that would be John Hay, Lincoln's secretary. Helped keep you know Lincoln's correspondence going, kept the visitors out. He looks about 17 and is oppressed with the necessity of behaving like 70, what people would say about him, with his important job of keeping anxious visitors out of Lincoln's way when needed. He would act as a PR man for Lincoln. He's devastated by Lincoln's assassination. He's there and then goes with Robert Lincoln to the president's deathbed. He's sent by Lincoln for a lot of these like little jobs that don't work, like a mission that Greeley, Horace Greeley has to go talk to Confederate agents in Niagara Falls or a plan on trying to convert Floridians to the Union. You know, but it's always kind of on the outside. He becomes a poet. He becomes a reporter. He goes to Chicago during the Great Fire and interviews Mrs. O'Leary, whose cow was said to start that fire. He goes on a lecture tour along with Susan B. Anthony and Mark Twain, where he reads some of his poems. He marries Clara Stone, the daughter of a railroad magnate in Cleveland, lives in a millionaire's row in Cleveland, supports Garfield, then Blaine for president. When McKinley wins, he becomes the ambassador to the United Kingdom. And then later, he'll be secretary of state to the young, now the aging the man that was a young man in Lincoln's employ is now an aging man in Theodore Roosevelt's employ. Roosevelt called him indispensable. So he he's there for the open door policy, the Boxer Rebellion during the McKinley administrations. He's there for the early part of Theodore Roosevelt's administration and foreign policy. Um, so I think you got to put John Hay in there. Uh, Clark Clifford is another one. Cuts across presidents, naval officer who's assigned to Franklin Roosevelt, and then becomes an assistant to Truman, who likes him, really becomes an all-around aide. He advises Truman on two important issues. One is to recognize Israel early, before the Soviet Union does, and the other is the Clifford Esley document, which advises Truman on various activities that the Soviet Union is doing that show that they are not behaving according to their previous statements after the war, um, and that they're trying to seize power in Europe. After the Truman administration becomes a powerful attorney in Washington, D.C., his office famously is in Lafayette Square overlooking the White House. He advises both Kennedys. He is involved with Lyndon Johnson on Vietnam policy. Then after Johnson's administration, he opposes it famously in an article in Foreign Affairs. Carter taps him in order to work on policy with India, but he also ends up getting involved in the Iran issue. And then finally, during the Reagan administration, he's hit with involvement in a savings and loan scandal. He advises people, but never, 
Only a short stint as defense secretary. Never really. In a, I put Clark Clifford there. In the same vein, I'm going to put James Baker there because James Baker goes all the way from President Ford, runs President Ford's campaign in 1976, the unsuccessful campaign. He's then involved with Reagan, even though he's connected more to George Bush. They put him in to be Reagan's chief of staff, a crucial decision, which really may have impacted how Reagan's presidency went um, instead of going with one of the more partisan California people. So James Baker then goes on to be secretary of state for George H.W. Bush and has a famous role with the president's son in 2000 during the Florida recount issue. He's also um, become very important. You know, just recently, uh, Trump had made a statement that he wanted to have a James Baker. Well, he did because James Baker didn't agree with Trump's side. So a good 30-year span in American politics, also a stint as Treasury Secretary. So you got to put him there. Um, tempted to say J. Edgar Hoover because he here's a real span. Hoover like goes from Wilson, right, because he was one of um, – the key investigator and the leader of the anti-communist team for Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer during the Wilson administration. And Hoover will go all the way through to Nixon's administration when he died. And obviously some famous involvement with presidents like Nixon and the Kennedys. He won't get along well with Truman, who makes sure he establishes a separate intelligence agency, the CIA, for foreign intelligence. Hoover wanted a piece of that. He does at least have a relationship with Franklin Roosevelt because for Franklin Roosevelt, Hoover provides this nice pro-law and order image for him. And for Hoover, he's getting funds and attention from the Roosevelt administration at a time of high government spending. So that relationship could really be explored more, that Roosevelt-Hoover, than it is. We, we talk a lot about Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy and Hoover, but... But I think he doesn't really quite make it like a Forrest Gump type figure because he's not just sitting there. He is certainly affecting events. But for someone that's not president, he's certainly involved with a lot of them. Uh, so there's one more name that I'll add to the mix, and that is Charles Dawes. Now, is he kind of a gump in the background of everything? Because he did become vice president, but his vice presidency was quite gumpish, if you ask me. Coolidge didn't like him. And he ended up in the background on many issues. He did try to push forward a agricultural pricing bill that would help farmers. And Coolidge was against it, didn't like that Dawes was pushing it in Congress and, and did everything to stop that bill. So he's born in Ohio. He gets his start in Nebraska. He meets William Jennings Bryan and General John Pershing there in this uh, Nebraska. People in the 1870s, 1880s start moving to Nebraska because it's a city, you know, Omaha and that area, it's a place of opportunity. You know, he disagrees with Brian on issues. He's a Republican, Brian's a Democrat, but he gets along with him, goes to Chicago, becomes a big banker, ends up raising money for McKinley. It is an important part of the fundraising for the 1896 campaign, which would set fundraising records. He becomes the comptroller of the U.S. currency. He doesn't get along with Theodore Roosevelt, so he's not much part of that administration, but he does get involved in World War One, working to help finance it and provide equipment. He works with uh, General John Pershing, his old friend from Nebraska. Later in a congressional committee that's asking about what was spent on the war, he has a famous quote, kind of a pushback. 
Helen Maria. We weren't trying to balance a budget. We were trying to fight a war. He becomes the budget director under Harding. He becomes the budget director under Coolidge. He comes up with a financing plan for Europe that'll end up winning him the Nobel Peace Prize. And then he does get the nomination and does become vice president. He's even talked about of continuing as vice president under Herbert Hoover in 1928, but Charles Curtis is selected in his stead. But the clincher for me of this fellow that's kind of like so much in the background of history is that Charles Dawes has something else that no other vice president has, and that's a posthumous career in music. And um, if you listen to my other podcast, the Vice President's Podcast that I have up on iTunes, if you haven't listened to that, go there. I have an episode on Charles Dawes, and I talked with Chris Novenbrino of the Don't Worry About the Government podcast, who also is a musician and actually is behind the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics theme. And he talks about Charles Dawes This song actually served as a bit of musical branding for Charles Dawes because when Dawes would enter a room throughout his political career, this is the piece of music that would accompany him. So this was sort of his theme song. Isn't there a tinge of sadness in it? Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's a bit wistful, like um, it's searching. It has been recorded and performed by a number of different musicians, and actually posthumously, Charles Dawes ended up winning a Grammy for this because it got recorded by a man named Tommy Edwards in the 1950s, and his 1951 recording of became, it's all in the game, lyrics got set to it, that ended up becoming a chart topper, and it got re-recorded again in 1958. This ended up hanging around, getting recorded by Nat King Cole, The Four Tops, Van Morrison has a very interesting version that is a, a departure, shall we mm -hmm. say. But this song had a real resonance with people. What I think, being a musician, think it requires you to look outside of the box and think outside of the box, because so often you're just starting with a blank slate. Um, and you see this in Dawes' professional life as well. A musician looks at the blank piece of paper and goes, space, I can fill it up with stuff. And Dawes, I think you see that the same way. So, Tom, I really like that question. Thanks a lot. Uh, it is one of those questions that I think you could have endless discussions about. People will have their own names and might disagree with some of these choices. So uh, those are some of the best questions, right? I've received the following wire from Vice President Nixon. In that wire, he says, Senator John F. Kennedy, Hyannisport, Massachusetts, I want to repeat through this wire the congratulations and best wishes I extended to you on television last night. I know that you will have the united support of all Americans as you lead the nation in the cause of peace and freedom during the next four years. So let's go back to Alabama and at the time of the 1960 election where you have this really strange pre-modern politics situation where you have a Kennedy running for president. He's not quite known yet as having done much on the civil rights issue, but he is known as a northern liberal. 
He has the support of a young Alabama governor who's a segregationist. And something else interesting happens that they're going to run a slate of electors for Kennedy and a slate of electors who are going to be uncommitted but Democrats. And they're going to be head up by a governor, Frank Dixon, who's a known segregationist. And six of them are going to earn spots in the Electoral College, and they're going to cast all their votes, not for Kennedy, but for Harry Byrd. Now, it's important to note, Harry Byrd never steps foot in Alabama, but he's a Virginian congressman, and he kind of controls the financing of Congress and also has blocked any civil rights legislation from getting through. So he's a segregationist in Virginia, and they cast the votes for them. Five other electors will cast the votes for Kennedy. Nixon will get zero electoral votes in Alabama. So we go to uh, Paige Brousseau, the fourth longtime listener of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thanks, Paige. He asks me, I can't remember if I asked you about this before. To me, it's a case-closed decision. Nixon won the popular vote in 1960. What's your take? Well, the first thing we're going to have to say to people out there is like, what the heck you're talking about? Because this isn't really a well-known story. But it is true to say that there is at least one way of dividing the popular vote in the 1960 election that has Nixon as the popular vote winner. And so you add to the story of Hillary Clinton, Grover Cleveland, but I'm telling you, it's not as clear cut as those other cases. So let's get into it. Uh, I did this topic, by the way, many years ago. I'm at the point where (laughs) 14 years, the archive's so big, I can't even know and find everything that I talked about. I know at some point I've got to get it all into transcripts, but it's a long process. And, you know, I know I discussed this in the past, but I also think that, you know, my the more you do research, things change over time. And so I, as I inferenced in the last podcast, I don't like making such definite statements anymore because there's so much complexity to history. But th- that being said, one shouldn't be silent either. We should investigate things and, and at least let you know about what the various theories are about this. Uh, because a lot of the journalists who've written about this will write things like, there's no way of understanding Alabama's Byzantine voting um, the popular vote is problematic. There's no way to dissect it. So there's people who are really certain and there's people who are really not certain. But it is true to say that if you, at least with one method of counting the popular vote in Alabama, Kennedy did not win the popular vote nationally in 1960. Nixon wins it by a very small amount, uh, 58,000 votes, but nonetheless wins it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, there's two reasons to talk about it. One is that I've seen things written principally by people who might be Republicans or at least supportive of the Nixon. We hear so much endlessly repeated about the 1960 election being such a close popular vote win for Kennedy, you know, when really it, it's possible that it wasn't. But really, there's no outcome to this story that I'm about to tell that changes that at all. It's close either way. It's just a question of whether it's a really close election for Nixon or a really close election for Kennedy. Nobody disputes that it, that it was a close election. And the second reason I think people want to talk about it is because obviously with two recent elections, 2000 and 2016, where the popular vote didn't determine the electoral college winner, uh, many Democrats are aggrieved. And really, when you look at it, even this recent election, you're getting to the point where there's possibly a 7 million popular vote difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and the Electoral College, you know, it's going to reflect a big number win, but in each of those states, there's some really close contests. So I think people are, are pointing at this. And so for the GOP, it wouldn't be bad, right, to have another something to point to in kind of a defense, right? Like, hey, well, 1960, your guy Kennedy, who you revere, might have lost the popular vote. And then many believe that he did. And I think in an older episode, I actually said, you know, Nick, Nixon won the popular vote when you count it. It's much more complex. We'll look at two things. One is the numbers. And that I think I looked at in the past episode. What I didn't do in the past was look at some of the history and the politics. And that's why we got into it earlier in the episode, because I think it's critical to understand what's going on. The traditional accounts of the 1960 election have Kennedy winning a popular vote of 34,220,984, while Nixon got 34,108,157. That's a 112,000 popular vote victory. The closest ever except for the 1880 election, which we think came down to 10,000 votes. But... What's included in Kennedy's total is 318,000 votes from Alabama. And what's included in Nixon's total also is 237,000 from Alabama. Yet Kennedy did not win all of the electors of Alabama. He won just five out of 11 cast. So, very simply, the simplest way I can say it is there is a way of counting the vote where you just give Kennedy five-elevenths of the Democratic vote in that year, and you get a Nixon win, 34,108,157 versus 34,049,976 for Kennedy. That's 58,000 votes ahead for Nixon, and he wins the popular vote. What's the reasoning behind this? Alabama did something weird in 1960. Instead of voting just for Kennedy or Nixon and maybe another candidate, they gave voters the choice of 11 people to vote for. So 11 separate electors, and each got their own set of votes. There were one Republican slate of electors, one Democratic slate of electors who were loyal to the Governor Patterson, and thus 
loyal to the Democratic ticket, John Kennedy at the top of it. And then there was a slate headed by Frank Dixon and other electors who were uncommitted electors. And they could go any way, but they were Democrats. And Frank Dixon was known to be a segregationist as governor. And in the end, those that um, those electors, as we indicated, cast their votes for Harry Byrd. Okay. So this is where it gets complicated. Kennedy didn't get 318,000 straight up votes for Kennedy. What it is, is that a judge that Patterson, the governor chose, C.G. Allen, got 318,303 votes. And then um, Frank Dixon got 324,000 votes. So he got more than Kennedy's high elector. So there's a school of thought that says, no, you have to take that Democratic vote and split it, 6-11th and 5-11th, because otherwise you're doubling the popular vote or you're indicating falsely that there were no popular votes for Harry Byrd when he got six electoral votes from the state. Okay. However, my counter to that would be a couple of things. Alabamans did cast 318,000 votes for somebody that they knew was going to vote for Kennedy. It's just that other electors got less votes and some of the uncommitted got more. And then that one high elector, the popular former governor of the state got 324,000. That's another thing to look at and why I wanted to get into the rich history of this, because if you look that the other, the uncommitted side's top elector was a popular governor and all Kennedy had was a judge, that difference, which is only about 5,000 votes, it shows that Kennedy was popular enough in Alabama. Now, what some historians have looked at is that, look, Frank Dixon was a segregationist. Uh, Okay, so what this really is, it represents within the Democratic Party, there were two choices. You could, you have the segregationist ticket, or you have the Kennedy kind of liberal ticket, and the segregationist ticket won. So how can you give Kennedy those popular votes? But that's one of the reasons I wanted to go deeper into this history, because when you look at it, and it's not a fun story, it's really a story of two segregationists, when Patterson was no um, liberal so anyone casting a vote for James Patterson's loyalist ticket could feel just as secure if they were segregationists that they they were voting the right way. So it's not that clear on that issue, too. There's some historians will say, like, well, the people that voted for the uncommitted ticket knew they were voting against those policies. I don't know, because Patterson, it turns out, was just as much of a, a racist as any of them until his recent conversion. So – Here's, so there's a third way too. What if you just say, okay, Bruce, you know, Alabama's, you know, was weird in this election, the way they set it up. It's just not a real true popular vote. Let's say you just get rid of Alabama. In that case, Nixon does not win uh, the popular vote. In that case, if you just get rid of Alabama, you have Kennedy at 33,902,984, Nixon at 33,871,157. Kennedy gets a an even narrower 31,000 victory. So the thing to remember about Alabama is that you need Nixon getting 237,000 votes there to make the argument about Nixon winning the popular vote too. You can't simply disregard Alabama. The only way Nixon wins the popular vote is if you give Kennedy five elevenths of Alabama, which would be 157,000 votes, and that brings him down to a 58,000 popular vote loss. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you. There's no other way. Um, what what I'll do is on the fans of my history can beat up your politics site. We'll put up an article that explains a lot of this. And so you can, 
you know, you can look into it yourself as well. Um, but that's where I have a little bit of an issue with saying Nixon won the popular vote because you're bringing Kennedy down to 157, but giving Nixon the full 237. It's true that there were Republican electors that, that the high elector was 237 of those 11. Kennedy, you know, again, I, I just can't separate that. Unlike in other elections where there might have been a popular vote loser, there were 318,000 Alabamans that cast their vote for C. G. Allen, who they knew were going to vote for Kennedy. So I'm mixed on it. And in terms of just disregarding a state's popular vote, right, as to determine the popular vote winner in election, there is some precedent for that because that's exactly what any early account of popular votes, like if we say Andrew Jackson won the popular vote, you have to remove states that didn't have any popular vote. So if there's other, some other kind of system for determining electors, you just get rid of that popular vote in the totals, which may not be fair. You know, we don't know, for instance, what Andrew Jackson would have gotten in some of the states that didn't have a popular vote. Suffice it to say that uh, the, the one thing that would, that's, that's clear in all three ways of looking at the election, given Nixon all the Alabama and giving Kennedy only five-elevenths of it, giving Kennedy his full elector, high elector, or just disregarding Alabama, that was an extremely close election, which reflected changes in America. People moving to suburbs, um, African-American voters switching their allegiance from Republican to Democrat, but not completely, not completely by any means. Democrats appealing to Catholic voters, but also putting Lyndon Johnson on the ticket to try to hold to uh, Protestants and Southerners. But thanks, Paige, for that question. I mean, it's a it's a really good one. Alex White asked me on the Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics site, I really enjoyed the episode on John W. Davis and was wondering if you would look at doing additional also-ran shows. Alex White also recommends a book by Irving Stone, They Also Ran. And uh, Alex, I can definitely say it's a wonderful book to read. It did sit on my bookshelf for a very long time. The the problem I had, it was one of those old mass market paperbacks, and it literally fell apart on me. <laughs> and it could be could have been an influence on that episode. I'm not sure. Um, I didn't use it for this particular one. So Irving Stone, they also ran great book. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that Irving Stone's not a pure historian. He was a writer of historical fiction. Think of him like Gore Vidal. And, and his books are great and all of that. And he wrote a ton of books. And there's nothing wrong with um, reading literature a little, you know, for history as well. Um, in the last episode, I talked a lot about this podcast and myself. And one of the things that I really should make clear is, you know, I don't have, I'm not a historian by trade. I don't have a uh, degree in history. I have a degree in literature. And that's where I actually came from. Um, I was, you know, more interested in the, the biographies of writers' lives and things like that. And um, so it, so Irving Stone is appealing to me in that way. What Stone does in that book is compare the people that lost the election sometimes to the people that won. And so someone like James Cox, you know, in the graphic on the cover of the book appears very tall to Harding appear very small. Uh, Lewis Cass compared to Zachary Taylor. Fremont, much larger than Buchanan. Um, you know, and I think that uh, a lot of readers of the book 
sometimes you know might quibble with his choices and but that's what they are they're they're Irving Stone's choices for who would have been better president anytime you get into that like I felt that he was a little unfair to Zachary Taylor who might be a better president if short served um better president than people have said and Lewis Cass was a squatter sovereignty guy you know before Stephen Douglas and I think that uh, I don't know what kind of presidency that would have been he he thought it would be a great one uh Fremont well, it's hard to think of a president that could be worse than Buchanan, but he was a little bit of a hothead and did get into trouble during the Civil War. So I don't know what kind of president he might be. I mean, these things are hard to predict, certainly. Um, William Jennings Bryan, he didn't think he'd make a good president. I think there were some issues with Bryan, that, but it's but it's hard to tell. And and the one thing, uh, but but Stone feels that he would have been too religious. And introduce that into government. Uh, perhaps. Was he this country's greatest secretary of state? Perhaps not. But he had good reasons for not wanting to get involved in that European war. Well, his countries were literally butchering each other over small amounts of land. I don't think a lot of Americans wanted a part of that. And when we got in, we got in late. And we got in with the most, um, the timing that we entered World War One was in the best interest of the country. So, um, you know, in the one office that he actually held, William Jennings Bryan, you know, could be laudable, um, some mistakes as well. The other thing you could say about Bryan is that the issues that he brought forth are issues that are very much in our politics today and didn't have a voice before him. You know, bringing to a major party the idea of the common person, what prices they were paying, and what credit was available to them are issues that really influenced the 20th century. Yeah, I highly recommend that Irving Stone book. And Alex, thanks a lot for your question. Alex Robinson wrote me a Twitter, and I'm at Twitter at, at myhist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T, uh, about Nixon and dirty tricks. Like Nixon always claimed that what he did was was j- the same thing that Democrats were doing in terms of Nixie, Nixie dirty tricks. Is there any truth to this? Um, and thanks, Alex, for asking that question. Um, so there's a couple of ways to approach it. One is that the Watergate committee that invested Watergate also looked at this question. There were Republicans on the Watergate committee. Fred Thompson, who would later become a senator and presidential candidate and an actor, uh, was on was the Republican lead counsel for the Watergate committee. And he made sure that if they were going to look at things that the Nixon White House did, they were going to look at what um, Democrats did as well. And paltry evidence at all came up. And they also interviewed Frank Mankiewicz, who um, helped to run the uh, – and Robert Stearns, who helped to run the – George McGovern campaign, and so they were available to both be questioned by Democrats and Republicans, and no evidence was brought up that there was any dirty tricks on the part of the McGovern campaign running against Nixon. They also felt that unlike statements Nixon was making, that these were just, you know, things that are normally done in politics, that 1972 was made so different, and there was an unalterable chasm between the McGovern campaign and of the democratic establishment that they could not recover from. Now, what are they talking about? 
things that occurred in the 1972 campaign were like there would be billboards out there in Florida during the Florida primary saying like, help Muskie bring more busing to the state. Well, he didn't put those billboards up. But even worse than that, there would be letterhead, you know, attacking um, uh, Scoop Jackson and other candidates, Humphrey, uh, for having an affair or for DUIs or things like this on the musky letterhead. Well, someone had stolen that musky letterhead. You know, it wasn't uh, something from the musky campaign. And that caused problems because then the Scoop Jackson people and the Humphrey people hated the musky people and it just made things bitter. Muskie loses that primary. There's also the Canuck letter, which turns out to be the work of Charles Colson, but they don't find that out till well, well later. The Muskie letter, uh, the Canuck letter, really it's called, is a uh, letter in which Muskie allegedly says that like New Hampshire's just a bunch of Canucks, which would have been a pejorative for French Canadians in you know, a big part of New Hampshire's population. So it's just this rumor that's printed in a very Republican sympathetic Manchester Union newspaper has no proof at what all. They can't even find the guy who wrote it. And it turns out it's Coulson behind the whole thing. So there were tricks um, that really got Nixon the opponent that he wanted, that he could beat, which is George McGovern. Uh, and then you add to that Watergate, the break-in, which had a lot of motives, but one of the straight-up political motives for that break-in into the Watergate Hotel is they wanted to find out, was the Democratic establishment patching things up with the McGovern campaign? I mean, as it turns out in history, it, it, it might have been useless. Like, there was no chance those two sides were really patching things up that well. But that's what they wanted to know, and that would be a critical piece of information that they attempted to get in using that bug in the, uh, in the Watergate. Um, okay, so also in the Watergate hearings, you have Pat Buchanan testifies, and he takes umbrage with any idea that these dirty tricks contributed to Nixon's win in 72. He points out, he's like, you know, Muskie loses Florida because George Wallace beat him in Florida. Muskie loses the New Hampshire vote because he just didn't run a good campaign. Also, George McGovern had been instrumental in changing the Democratic Party rules to favor him, which is absolutely true. A lot of bad name-calling and things were done during the 72 campaign. McGovern hints that Nixon's policies in Vietnam are not unlike Adolf Hitler, and that, that, that compares it to the Holocaust. Is that good politics? Is that a dirty trick? He and other witnesses in the Watergate Committee point out that there was connections between the protesters and the McGovern campaign, and that every time Nixon went out, you know, you would get you would get these protesters. And and um, in answer to your question, Alex, I. I do believe that Nixon perfected the idea of dirty tricks, but there is one trickster that influenced him, and he was a Democrat, and that is Richard Duck of California, who never quite achieved office, but did run for state senator in California once, but just pulled off the greatest political pranks, and Nixon was one of his targets, and Nixon knew it. And years later, Richard Tuck would talk about how he was on the Nixon tapes, and Nixon said that it, Nixon was a big fan of my work. Uh, what kind of tricks did he pull? Well, there's one point where Nixon's speaking during his run for governor. And a, at the same time, he's, he's near a rail yard. A conductor waves for an engineer to have the train pull forward. And so as Nixon begins to speak, he can't hear him because this train's going. 
Now, it turns out nobody can find this conductor afterwards. It was just a guy dressed as a conductor. The train wasn't supposed to go. There's another case where Nixon is um, speaking to a group of Chinese Americans in San Francisco, and Richard Tuck hands out fortune cookies, which in Chinese say, ask Nixon about the Hughes loan. Nixon's brother Donald had borrowed money from Howard Hughes. And it was kind of a, a little bit mini scandal and things. So this is this is all during his run for governor in 62. Oh, here's another good one where after the Kennedy-Nixon debates, Nixon's in California, this woman with a Nixon pin comes running up to the candidate and hugs him. But in view of the TV cameras and the mics says, I am so sorry that you lost that debate. This was the work of Richard Tuck. And, you know, even in one of his first races in the 1950s, he's running for Senate. Richard Tuck's volunteers as a Nixon volunteer, and he says, I'll put together a party for Nixon. But he, he books a hall, doesn't advertise it at all. 28 people come, ruins an opportunity that might have been a better opportunity for him. So it's kind of these political pranks. And this is a guy that's not really that serious. He's good at it, but he's not really that serious. Richard um, Tuck is going, he runs for state Senate. He's going to declare from a graveyard. He's going to say, because the dead have a right to vote too. You know, this, this is kind of his thing. But I think like Nixon takes these techniques and perfects it. There's a couple more things. Richard Tuck also disrupts the Goldwater campaign train in 1964 has a person on there with a gun, uh, you know, pretending to be a newsletter reporter. And she starts announcing that uh, these like weird conspiracy theories, don't worry, there's no poison fluoride on this train. And she's pulled off the train eventually. You know, in terms of Nixon's argument about the Democrats doing the same dirty tricks, I don't think when you look at something like the plumbers unit and what they were doing in 1972 in Miami Beach, some of the the boat operations and which Buchanan talks about in on the Watergate Commission, he refers to a memo where actually Buchanan says, you know, don't get involved in we'll, we'll have a station at the my Democrat Miami Beach Convention in 1972. We'll answer questions from reporters, but keep it above the top. Don't engage in any covert operation. Sort of because neither Thompson nor the Democratic questioners ask him a direct question. They don't find out until 1996 when he's running for president and running against Bob Dole pretty strongly. And they find that there was a fourth page to this memo. It basically says, we're going to engage in covert operations. And so um, that doesn't come out until 1996. So it's not that Buchanan lies during this committee. It didn't, they didn't question him enough. I think a crux of Nixon's argument, if you want like the strongest point, it's like, look, you know, before Nixon came Lyndon Johnson and Lyndon Johnson – Bug Nixon's campaign plane. He also had the FBI um, get sources within the, the Goldwater campaign. And sometimes they'd complain in 64 that Johnson would respond to a speech before Goldwater even gave the speech. So, you know, th that I think is just some of your stronger arguments there. I do not believe that what Nixon did, uh, whether he knew about what the plumbers are doing or not, but then to cover up behind that um, is not something that's you can easily point to a democratic alternative and say it's like the same thing. You know, that's where I'd leave it. Thanks, Alex, for asking the question. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Remember the Patreon site. So that is 
patreon.com slash mhcbuip and you can get more episodes there and support the program thank you so much for those that have signed up i think we're we're fast approaching 25 right now let's get more (laughs) thanks for listening As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.